0: Good morning. Welcome again. My name is Tyler. If we have not met, uh, I normally just do the music here, and today I'm going to be uh, bringing the word to you. So uh, thank you for the opportunity. If you've got your Bible or a scripture journal handy, go ahead and open up. Let's turn to Mark chapter 1 today. Mark chapter 1, I'll give you a second. In Mark chapter 1, we're going to be spending the majority of our time in verse 16, but we're going to back up just a little bit, just to give ourselves some context. We can kind of set the stage for ourselves this morning. So if this is your first week here, what we're doing is, as a church, we're going through the entire book of Mark. We're going to read, at the end of the series, we're going to have read and taught every single verse. But where we're at today, we find ourselves at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's near the Sea of Galilee. So previously, the, the whole book in 10 seconds, uh, Jesus was introduced on the scene with John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And after being baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, verse 10 says. And then after this, he was driven into the wilderness, and he was tempted by Satan for 40 full days, which I think is crazy because I can't even walk by the donut case in cars. It's the, it's the apple fritters. Like, have you had one? The glaze keeps it fresh all day. It doesn't matter what time you go. I promise, go there. Don't do that. So after, (laughs) I didn't write that in my notes, I'm sorry. After 40 days of temptation, the book of Mark tells us that Jesus came to Galilee, and that's where we're at today. So let's take a look at verse 14. It'll be on the screens for you, and then we're gonna spend the remainder of our time starting in about verse 16. So Mark 1, verse 14 says this. Now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now on to verse 16. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately Jesus called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. So this is a, this is a very special passage to me. Um, Mark 1, 16 through 20, is the very first passage that I ever exposited in front of people, like Miked up and everything. Church, it was terrible. I did a really bad job. Okay, so let's set the stage. If this is, the year is 2007, and our high school was hosting a baccalaureate. And for those of you that are not familiar with what a baccalaureate is, it's a kind of religious commencement ceremony, and it's held for the students whose parents forced them to do it. <laughs> uh. So, okay, so I volunteered to do one of the speaking portions, right? They, they're like, high school students can do this. And so they gave us mics and let us do that. I was chomping at the bit. But if you knew me, you knew that I also never really prepared for anything. I just went like, fishers of men, got it. And church, I did not have it. I got up up on the stage and with just all of the unqualified confidence of a chihuahua just lunging at a Rottweiler, I stood up on the stage and I told everybody in the room that fishermen, they're the most disgusting, despicable, smelly, foul, illiterate burdens on society. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to get there. I know. I messed up. <laughs> and listen, if God would call those cretins, those barbarians, then imagine what God can do if he calls you. And then I just walked off the stage like Kanye at the VMAs. <laughs> so to recap, a barely 18-year-old high school student... Wearing a Legend of Zelda t shirt, got up on a very public stage in southeast Alaska and condemned fishermen, all my friends' dads, to just bottom tier subhuman status. And I acted with all, just swaggeringly, like I was giving them a prophetic gift from the Lord. Like, really let that Alaska thing kind of sink in a moment. I was born and raised in Ketchikan, the salmon capital of the world. And none of my friend's parents ever let me hang out with them anymore. And I think I know. So, right, my, my ministry career, it's off to a great start. You know what I'm saying? Like nothing fills the pews like alienation. We can't all be Charles Spurgeon, right? He started when he was 16. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. What I'd like to do is just read his exposition of this passage because he does more in two sentences than I've done in my entire life. Listen to this. Charles Spurgeon writes this about Mark 1, 16 through 20. It's up on the screen if you want to read along. I have sometimes heard the comparison drawn as though believers had a hook and a line, which they do not. Our business is not to entice a fish to swallow the bait, but to cast the net all around us and lift sinners out of the element in which they lie into the boat where Christ is. I have never written anything that good. My ministry was off to a bad start, but let me, you know, let me tell you about the guy whose ministry was off to a great start. There's only one guy who started right, he kept it right, and he ended right, and that man is, of course, our Lord Jesus. Last week, we learned about what his ministry was. The kingdom is here, repent, and believe. What we're here to look at today is the point at which Jesus began to call his first disciples. See, Jesus was doing something new, something the world had never seen before. He also did it in a way that is just completely alien to how we might see anything similar in our day. So think of it like a big tech startup for a second. Like you have, you have that idea. You've got to take the idea. You've got to polish it. You've got to present it. But then you can't start selling it until you get your, you know, your team and your backers all lined up. You know, obviously you want the brightest minds in on the development team. You want the sharpest pros ready to kind of polish uh, and advertise for you. And you've got to have connections because for the distribution, and you've got to network with the upper crust a bit because you've got to find your backers. But Jesus didn't do that. We could put it in church year terms. You know, if you want to plant a church... You've got to scope out your location. You've got to build your core team of strong believers. You have to try to develop a sense of community. And then you have to appeal to larger organizations to hopefully help fund your ministry. And then you buy pizza for college students until they want to come to church with you. Right? But Jesus didn't do that either. Jesus cast the vision. And what he did was he found four, at the beginning, four very, very normal men. And he said, follow me. And they did. Jesus wasn't looking for shareholders. He wasn't recruiting the best and brightest up-and-comers. He was looking for those with the faith to trust and to follow him. And they happened to be four fishermen. Like I think in today's terms, you'd probably compare them to uh, like you know a couple of guys working at all the tire repair shops we have all around town. Like, we all got our tires just swapped over, right? I mean, I didn't because it started snowing at 7 a.m., and by 7.03, I called, and they were like, yeah, we're booked through January. No, sorry. <laughs> Hopefully, you had better luck than I did. That's a mostly true story. It was the end of November. Put yourselves in their shoes for a minute. Like, you know, you get a couple of guys working shoulder to shoulder like that. But over time, they're probably a well-oiled machine, Right? You don't really need to talk, being really eloquent and being really well-read. It doesn't necessarily help all that much when you're doing back-breaking, knuckle-grinding work all day. Think about what Jesus was trying to do here. Just forget what you know about the future for just a moment. Let's get us right in the timeline, right right where we're at in the timeline. He starts his ministry. He starts it by upending everything the Jewish people know. There has been 400 years of radio silence from God at this point. Nobody has spoken with God's voice as a prophet for four centuries. Okay, all they know is Roman occupation. They know Roman rule. But Jesus came and told the people that the kingdom of God was here. God's people are taught by the Pharisees to avoid the things that would anger God and then to pay for your mistakes in the form of sacrifice But Jesus came and said, you can repent of your sin. The Jewish people are taught to obey, but Jesus said, believe. These concepts would completely detonate the social structure and belief system of God's people. Jesus knew this going into it. He was ready to give everything to make that happen. Like if you and I were in that assignment, like if somebody handed you a piece of paper and said, this is what you got to do. Like, you better believe we'd all be Samuel L. Jackson at the end of every Marvel movie from 2008 to 2012, just showing up at people's houses. You want to recruit the Avengers for this. You want to assemble those guys. You don't want the sidekicks. But of course, Jesus doesn't do that either. Jesus could have had anyone he wanted on his team he could create a new religious elite. He could have done this. He could have made a group of guys that were able to out-religion the Pharisees and the Sadducees, make a name for themselves, but the Messiah chose four fishermen. We see time and again in the Old and New Testament that God's not looking for our qualifications. God's after our hearts. And not only that, God frequently calls the weakest, he calls the poorest, the most s- sinful people to his purposes. And here Jesus is doing that. It's completely counterintuitive to the world around us. Let's look to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 for just a moment. I'll have it on the screens if you don't want to flip back and forth. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth of the things that he has seen, of the revelations he's received and he says this starting in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from coming, becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient. For you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The reason Jesus calls simple fishermen, and the reason that Jesus calls you and I today in our weakness is because Jesus isn't showing the world what we can do. Our weakness shows the world what Jesus can do. One of the early church fathers, Eusebius, he writes this somewhere around 300 years after Jesus died, and I just really appreciate uh, how he gets us to relate to the disciples. Um, This is another quote that's going to be on the screen for you. So think about the the disciples hearing Jesus call out to them and pitching the vision to them. Eusebius writes, but how can we do it? The disciples might reasonably have answered, how can we preach to Romans? How can we argue with Egyptians? We are brought up to use the Syrian tongue only. What language shall we speak to Greeks? How shall we persuade Persians, Armenians, Chaldeans, and Scythians, Indians, and other scattered nations to give up their ancestral gods and to worship the creator of all? What abilities in speaking have we to depend on in attempting such a work as this? And what hope of success can we have if we dare to proclaim laws directly opposed to the laws about their own gods that have been established for ages among the nations? By what power shall we ever survive our daring attempt? Jesus says, I am enough. It is enough for you to follow me. That's the invitation he gave to the four fishermen at the start of his ministry. And luckily for us, that's the same invitation that he gives you and I today. See, church, what I think we have lost is the divine sense of ordinary. Like normal, it just doesn't cut it for us anymore. Nobody's looking for normal. Nobody's paying for normal. Plain and mundane, it doesn't do it for us anymore. We can all go home today. Like turn on your TV, find normal. Okay, some of you don't have a TV. I get it. Like I know that you don't have it. Okay, so open up your newspaper today because I know you still get one. Find normal. Look at that front page. Is normal gonna be there? I don't think so, not especially after the week we just had. If we've lost our sense of ordinary, then I believe that we have been desensitized to one of the greatest avenues that God uses to communicate Himself to us. Just like God used ordinary people with ordinary jobs, the four fishermen, to spread the one true gospel to the ends of the earth. God uses ordinary people, ordinary activities, conversations. He uses ordinary jobs, ordinary things like nature and relationships. God uses all of those ordinary things to reach out to us, to teach us, to show us his glory. And often, church, we just can't be bothered with it. Think about it. Doesn't ordinary feel a little bit unattainable anymore? Like, I get a little confused. I don't really even know what the word normal means. Like, I, I, I swear, I grew up hearing the word, like, I worked a normal nine to five. You've heard that phrase? What is a nine to five anymore? Like, we work at work. We work at home. We work on the way to work in the car. We work on our vacations. Were elections ever normal? I feel like it's in school I learned that like they would they would show up, right? You have two guys, they'd go, here's what we believe, here's what we believe. If you like this guy, you're gonna vote for this guy, and he's gonna win, and everybody's gonna have a better time. I feel like now it's just kind of finger pointing, it's just kind of a lot of fear-mongering. Every ballot measure is pitched as a matter of life and death urgency. You know, I don't know if it's all our fault ever thought about our economic system? Like, do you realize that our, our entire economic system, it would just crumble if we were to all suddenly be content? <laughs> our whole system, it's based off of unlimited, unregulated growth and expansion, and we live in a world of finite resources. Where do we think that's going to end us? We are bombarded with go, do, fast, danger, death, loud, noise, bye, bye, bye. We have lost the ability to simply be. But God says that's where he is. He's in the normal. He meets us in the ordinary. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us, for what can be known about God is plainly is known plainly to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made if you're like me you might be tempted to say that you just don't have enough time or money to go meet with God there you wait until sunday Sunday, when you can have your prepackaged God with your prepackaged stale cracker, your prepackaged grape juice, and then you're tempted to hope that that's going to be enough to hear, Well done, my good and faithful servants. Okay, I'm not, don't misunderstand, I'm not telling you, you gotta do more, 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 okay? Please don't hear me. I, I hope you realize that's not where we're gonna end today. My hope today is that you will embrace the ordinary because the most extraordinary one is going to meet you there. My mother invited me this week uh, to a large gospel conference. She's been going for a few years. She invited me because what she said was, quote, it's the best fill of the Spirit that I've ever had, which is good. Like, you know, that's, that's a fine thing. That's a good thing. But if you're waiting to be filled with the Spirit for the extraordinary production your end of summer uh, retreats you know your dimly lit worship nights like my friends you're missing out it's not enough our father is extending an invitation for you to know him deeply to understand him and to know his purpose for your life in just the most mundane places you can imagine god wants to reveal himself to you through the most ordinary things because in all of the ordinary, God can show the extraordinary. He changed the world forever with a few crusty fishermen, and He did that on purpose. That was not an accident. Maybe, may, maybe God is calling you right now to accomplish His purposes in your life, just as you are right now. Have you considered that? Have you considered that He may not be waiting for you to memorize your large, you know, catechisms or to get your Bible degree? he might not be waiting for you to do those things for you to change somebody else's life. This applies to kind of both types out there. Like if you're super type A and you thrive off of conflict and self-improvement, or maybe if you're like me, you're hoping for something a little quieter. You're really happy to let others take the spotlight for a minute. You know, you owe it to your spiritual walk to seek out the Lord in the normal, boring, everyday parts of your life and to not wait until you reach some nebulous standard that nobody else ever set for you. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were all normal men with normal everyday rhythms. But maybe you haven't stopped to consider yet that Jesus was also a man. Like, I'm certainly tempted to think, like, yeah, of course Jesus can do all these things, he's perfect, he has all the power of God. And he's amazing, right? Which is true. All of those things are true. We should be believing those things about Jesus. But we also need to understand that Jesus was the most qualified authority on what it means to be normal that has ever walked the earth. Jesus is the expert on normal. You can look up at the screen for a moment. We're going to see a few ways in which Jesus constantly reveals his humanity in the scripture. The Bible says he called himself the son of man. The Bible says that Jesus was born of of a natural mother. Jesus got hungry. Jesus was thirsty. He was emotional. He wept in John 11. He felt temptation, just like you and I do. He felt pain and suffering, just like you and I do. He was a tradesman. He was a carpenter. He was a son. He was a brother. He disappointed and upset people, just like you and I do. And he would go on to die in Matthew 27. Can we agree that that sounds kind of like a normal life experience? And yet, and yet, he was also God. He was completely man, and he was fully God. And this God-man, he cares about normal people doing normal things in normal places, Don't be afraid that you're not enough, that you don't have enough to offer. Like if you hear the call of the master, pick your head up and follow. He's not waiting on some future version of you. I've said that in several of my past sermons. He's waiting for you to trust that he knows what he's doing when he calls you. You are enough. You matter. Your weakness is a good thing because God is going to demonstrate his strength. But here's the good news, right? Jesus isn't going to leave you there. He's not going to leave you where he found you. If we look back to our passage uh, in Mark, uh, we see that Jesus makes a promise to his followers. 17 says, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Jesus called out to these men and he promised them that they would change But he's not erasing who they are as a person. God values your personhood and made you to be who you are for a reason. It's a good thing he did that. Peter and Andrew, the first two, they were fishermen. They knew this one thing and Jesus knew that. He was very aware that they were fishermen. He didn't say, come to me, come with me, we're going to change the world. You're going to be the greatest public speakers the world, has, the world has ever seen. You're going to be sharper, you're going to be smarter and more capable than any man you've ever seen, because I need that kind of guy on my team. He didn't make that pitch to them. He said, come be who you are, but follow me and do it for the kingdom. God values who you are today today. And he can reveal himself and use you in just the most normal parts of your life, no matter who you are. When we follow Jesus, our lives are given purpose, and he shapes us and molds us for his purposes as we go. Like, rest easy if you're not who you think you should be today. God's not finished with you yet. You might find that he's barely gotten started. If you slow yourself down and you quit looking for these ultra spiritual experiences or these extremely qualified people to tell you how to think or act or vote or whatever, if we stop looking for those things, I'm sure that you'll find that God has been, been speaking to you through your, your, through your little church, through your normal family. He's been speaking to you through the very normal interactions and opportunities that may seem to you like they just kind of come and go. You do not have to shake the whole earth with your first sermon. Lord knows I did not. You don't have to memorize like the thickest theology textbooks. You don't have to be this ultra A-type Billy Graham street preacher to make a difference in people's lives for God's kingdom. God may change people's lives forever because you did something like held a crying baby so mom could get a glass of water. God can call someone to devote their entire lives to the ministry of gospel because you're an orthopedist or a physical therapist or you're a personal trainer and now someone else understands how amazing it is that their body acts the way that it does. Yeah, if you're one of those three things, I was thinking of you. God may be able to reveal his majesty because you took someone on a hike for an afternoon. Church, I'm quite sure that heaven is going to be full of normal people who prayed normal prayers, who worked normal jobs, because other normal people did normal things with them, for them, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. Don't be afraid of normal. Don't let the world steal normal from you. Hold the door open at the gas station for the glory of God. You know, be a barista for the glory of God. Show some real estate for the glory of God and be open as you do these things to the voice of God. He will lead you, church, into uncharted waters. We know this. But our Savior can calm the waves. We are in good hands. Let's tie it all back to Jesus calling fishermen. Despite all those terrible things I said earlier about fishermen, I was raised by a fisherman. I know. Plot twist. He's my grandpa, And I love him with all my heart. I named my son after him. He's one of the greatest men that I've ever known. He's not a learned man. Like he's not gonna, you know, you can't ask him to define transubstantiation. He's not gonna help you out. He can't really carry a tune to save his life. He falls asleep in church. But he took care of his family. He did it by being who he was. I wouldn't be here today without his very, very ordinary influence in my life. He loves me, and I love him. When God uses the ordinary, it is the extraordinary. That God would choose to use an uneducated, unremarkable people to educate the entire world in the most remarkable ways, that is miraculous. And the fact that God consistently chooses the least likely, I hope, may even be a warning to you if you struggle with the addiction to uh, ambition or just to, to spectacle, to the spectacular. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is writing to urge the church to devote themselves to, uh, to brotherly love. He's calling them to devote themselves to purity and holiness and to continue trusting in the Holy Spirit. But listen to what he says in verse 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 starting in verse 11 says "And church to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs mind your own business and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Live quietly I think that's probably the thesis for this whole sermon. The simple Day-to-day rhythms, just trusting in Jesus to do what he says he's going to do and being ready to follow at his command. Like, I can't think of a more fulfilling life. What I hope is going to tie it all together for us, I, I'm going I'm to read something for us here. Um, it's not going to be on the screen, so I'll just try to read it very clearly. And this should be a lot of fun. What I'm going to read is, a, a, is an excerpt from this book. This is a book called Every Moment Holy. The excerpt I'm going to read about a very normal day-to-day life. This is called a liturgy for changing diapers. This is a very, very normal part of my everyday walk. This is just a rhythm. You may not be able to relate to diapers now, ever, but you'll be able to relate to monotony, to the normal everyday flow of things that feel pointless, but they're not, listen to this. It may help, I'm not going to require you to do this. It may help to just close your eyes and to just think of, think of this like a prayer because that's how it's written. A liturgy for changing diapers. It's not even the only one, there's another one right after it, but I'm just going to read the first. Heavenly Father, in such menial moments as this, the changing of a diaper, I would remember this truth. My unseen labors are not lost. For it is these repeated acts of small sacrifice that, like bright ragged patches, are slowly being sewn into a quilt of loving kindness that swaddles this child. I am not just changing a diaper. By love and service, I am tending a budding heart that, rooted early in such grace-filled devotion might one day be more readily inclined to bow to your compassionate (laughs) conviction, knowing itself then as both a receptacle and a reservoir of heavenly grace. So this little act of diapering, though in form sometimes felt as base drudgery, might better be described as one of 10,000 acts by which I am actively creating a culture of compassionate service and selfless love to shape the life of this family and this beloved child. So take this unremarkable act of necessary service, O Christ, and in your economy, let it be multiplied into that greater outworking of worship and of faith, a true investment in the incremental advance of your kingdom across generations. Open my eyes that I might see this act for what it is from the fixed vantage of eternity, O Lord, how the changing of a diaper might sit upstream of the changing of a heart." How the changing of a heart might sit upstream of the changing of the world. Amen. Not all of us can relate to changing diapers. You know, certainly someone's changed yours. That did happen. Let it be a reminder to you that God is always near. He sees you and He's always moving, even if it's behind the scenes. And even when you feel boring or inadequate, Remember how God used a carpenter from a small village and four fishermen to change the world because they had the Spirit of God with them and they followed the Savior. If you feel like you're not enough, if the things you do don't feel grand enough, remember that Jesus, he's not looking for your strength. He's not looking for your qualifications or some big world-shaking idea from you. Excuse me. What he's looking for, he's just asking for you to trust him and to follow where he leads. So meet him where he's calling you, you know, whether on a grand stage or just at the grocery store. He is there. And he'll walk with you as you are now. And he'll change you as you go into who he wants you to be. And that's my hope for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my weakness. And I pray that we're all able to do the same. God, we know that through our weakness you reveal your strength to the world. God, I thank you for the ordinary in our lives. I thank you for mundane interactions that God may sometime, sometime in the future breed, breed heart change, bring about world change. God, I pray that you would just help us to be receptive in those moments of what the book called Base Drudgery, that we would realize that you use those moments. You are in control of those things. And God, you are good, and you're never gonna let that go to waste. God, we confess that you are good. We confess that your mercy endures forever. And I just pray that you guard our hearts against the spectacular things of this world, the things that amaze us and wow us, the things that take our money and our time God, that we would devote ourselves to a little bit more quiet so that we wouldn't have to strain as hard to hear your voice. Heavenly Father, you are so good. We are so thankful for this time of worship. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.